This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedic and Sports Medicine. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You are encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessi on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up-to-date medical information, and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and thank you for joining us this afternoon, actually this morning as we go into the afternoon. Um, This is our 21st consecutive program on the topic of COVID-19. And this story just gets crazier. I can't think of a better word to describe it. We have been fighting a pandemic for what's somewhere between five and a half months and three and a half months. Uh, And there's that variable time because we still don't know. We still haven't been able to ascertain when we first heard about it in this country. We know we had our first death on January 20th, but that's neither here nor there. The real point is that we are fighting a pandemic from a highly contagious virus and we don't have a treatment and we don't have a vaccine. We've often said on this program, just to recap, you play offense and defense. We're playing defense because our offense is a treatment or a vaccine, which we don't have. So what is defense? Defense is whenever you're fighting an enemy to Identify the enemy, isolate the enemy, and then trace the enemy so you know where that enemy is. The virus is our enemy. So we decided, as a country, that we would shut things down, shut down schools. We're going to isolate until we can identify, because we didn't have enough tests. We didn't need a lot of testing, right? So we had to isolate just in case everybody had this virus. So we isolated, we shut things down. We've gradually increased the amount of testing and the sensitivity of the testing, although we're clearly not there and we'll discuss that further. So we've implemented these things, identification, isolation, contact tracing. But we've had no federal leadership. It's been up to states to make their own decisions. So instead of a United States of America, we've had a lot of individual states of America making decisions. With that, here's the crazy part. 40,173 new cases of COVID-19 are reported on Friday, June 25th, yesterday. A new record number of new cases. The previous record was set the day before, Thursday, June 24th. So we can see that we're not making much headway in this country. As a nation, we are not. 30 states are reporting increased numbers of cases. Fortunately, Connecticut is not one of them. Why? Because obviously our leaders made the right decisions, as opposed to the leaders in states like Florida, Texas, Arizona, where those cases just keep going up. Remember when they told us when the weather gets warm, this is going to wash through, right? Well, 
it's not washing through. This virus is fairly resilient to warm temperatures. I was hopeful that that would be the case. At least the numbers would go down and not go up. So we're seeing these cases. And yesterday I had the misfortune of watching the task force meeting, which was disheartening. And it's hard. I think people who know me know I'm not somebody who becomes easily disheartened. I was disheartened. I was disheartened because instead of hearing a clear, decisive plan on how we're going to make this nation better, I heard a bunch of excuses. Excuses. Okay. These are just a few isolated hotspots. No, they're major metropolitan areas. Houston, Dallas, Austin, Texas, Phoenix, Arizona. These are not little towns. These are places where things spread quickly. The one thing that we were told that would help us in playing defense is social distancing, masks, and hand washing. The masks protect us from spreading the virus to others around us, right? Because as you breathe, as you sing, as you shout, you splatter people. That splatter has the virus. So you wear a mask out of respect for your neighbors and the people around you and your family members. But no, 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 wait, we're hearing that's not the case now. We're hearing, uh, well, we don't need to socially distance, wear masks, I don't even know if they wash their hands at large gatherings as long as they're political gatherings because they have freedom of speech. That's like saying people have freedom to drive a car drunk. Right. They're endangering other people, but they they must have a right. Oh, we have a law against that. I guess we have to pass laws for everything, even common sense. It's common sense. But we need laws for these things. That's disheartening. And then. You hear people say, well, of course we have more cases, right? Because we're testing more. Oh, my goodness. When someone tells me that, I know I'm talking to a stupid person. I don't even like using that word stupid. But that is the art. I mean, let's think about this. Let's, let's move over to the field of breast cancer, right? We, now, we do mammograms to find women who have breast cancer. Well, I guess if we didn't do mammograms, we wouldn't have any breast cancer or the numbers wouldn't be high. Instead, we have a test to find out the cancer and hopefully intervene and treat somebody so they could live longer. That's the idea of doing testing. So the object is to do as much testing as you possibly can to identify this virus, this enemy, so you can isolate that person and not spread the virus who cares i mean the numbers go up that doesn't mean that's like somebody saying well you know if i didn't go to the doctor and find this cancer i have i wouldn't have cancer no you still have cancer no these people are still going to be sick from covid19 it's just that we're trying to help them and find it out so the numbers are going up only because we're doing a good job. We're actually finding them. So for anybody to say we should turn back the testing, that's like saying let's do fewer colonoscopies and then we won't have as much colon cancer. That's a ridiculous argument. 
So with that, we need to move forward. And sometimes you have to look at the past to move forward. This day in medicine, June 27th, 1721, Dr. Zabadel Boylston, he was a Boston physician from 1680 to 1766. On June 27th, this day in 1721, he inoculated his own son during a smallpox epidemic. He took the pus from a wound of someone who had smallpox, made a small incision, a small sore in his own son and two of his servants, and inoculated them with that pus. And they were then immune from smallpox. So we need to get to that point. Obviously, things have become a lot more sophisticated since 1721. But we need to move forward with that. My guest today is going to be Dr. David Bannock. Dr. Bannock is the head of infectious of the infection program at UConn Health. He's an infectious disease specialist. He's an MD, a master in public. He has a master's in public health. We're going to talk about how we make healthcare workers safer. We're going to talk about what is going on with this virus and maybe get some more insight into why things have worked well in Connecticut. Why are our numbers, why are we a green state when we look at those maps? What have we done right? And what could we continue to do right here in the state of Connecticut? The phone number's here, 860-522-9842 and 1-800-966-9842. You could also email me at any time at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And we talked a little bit uh, earlier about the numbers. And what's good about the numbers are we're seeing fewer people who are seriously ill. We're able to identify this virus sooner. I know in my own experience in the lab where I do electrodiagnostic testing, in the last two weeks we've tested about 20 people before they've come in for their procedure. Of those people, two were positive. Those are two people who didn't know they had the virus but have been able to isolate now. They will get their testing done in about three weeks. But again, it's important to identify. The numbers are staggering. I mean, you know, for people to try and put a happy face on on what's going on is ridiculous. We have over 120, approximately 127,000 Americans dead. Over 2.5 million people identified with having the COVID-19 virus. So it's there. But the state of Connecticut, we've had 46,000 identified cases and over, a little over 4,300 deaths. So our numbers are much better than everybody else's uh, when we look at that and we look around it. And so Connecticut is reopening. It's reopening in a way that follows the guidelines that were given to us, but not followed by our federal leaders. And moving along slowly, getting people into the habit of wearing masks when they go into a store, social distancing if you go to a restaurant or a bar. And we're starting to see the benefits of that. Uh, I'll be on a phone call tomorrow about 
two major sporting events that want to move things to Connecticut. Now, they were scheduled to be elsewhere, Florida, uh, Nevada, California. These were all places that they were supposed to go. But suddenly there's an interest in coming to Connecticut. And hopefully we'll have more and be successful in landing that. But this is major events, TV events that will be over a period of time, over months. But this will be the location for them is Connecticut because we've been able to do the right things. One of the things we have to get to is adequate testing. We've now tested in the last four months, we've tested 25 million people. Everybody gets excited. Wow, 25 million people. We need to be testing 5 million people a day. 5 million people a day. How do you get to that number? Dr. Fauci mentioned it yesterday, and that is pool testing. By that they mean you can test groups of people at one time, so groups of specimens. So what they do is they take 100 specimens and put them into groups of five. So you have 20 groups of five, and you test those five all at the same time. If they're all negative, they're good to go. If any are positive, and you won't know which ones, if a positive result comes up, then you have to take those specimens out and individually test them, which is what we do now. So with that, you can do vast numbers of testing at one time and potentially get to that 5 million sample a day figure. Now, someone stopped me and asked me, well, how are you going to do it? How are you going to do 5 million? How are you going to take 5 million samples a day? You can. Let's think about it. I mean, other countries have done it. Uh, when you go to work, uh, I, I work at the hospital. When I go to work, right, uh, they are taking my temperature. Maybe there'll be a way of just taking a specimen then. So I may be getting tested every day, which would be great. Because, again, we need to find out where the virus is. So Connecticut is gradually reopening. And the, the quicker we can start identifying this virus and isolating people, like the two people I mentioned, uh, is important. Because now those two people have been able to isolate themselves from their family, from work, for that two-week quarantine period. Whoever thought we'd have a quarantine period for people coming to visit us from other states. Right? So people coming from Florida... You're going to self-quarantine for two weeks. That's what you should do. I know a friend told me what they do in Poland is when you get into town, you have to register with the police. And they go to your house every day. And they call you on the cell phone. And you have to come to your porch or window and show that you're in your house. We haven't gone to that level, but that's how you trace contacts. That's how people quarantine in other countries. So... What we're seeing here, when we look at this whole situation we're in, is what has been an attack on science. Let me explain. Over time and gradually, we've seen people deny, there's these deniers out there, right? They deny that there's global warming and the climate is, we are affecting the climate, we're poisoning our climate. They're denying that they're global warming despite all the evidence that there is global warming. But again, 
these people deny it. Well, this is science. These are hard facts. The same with vaccines. We know vaccines work. Vaccines are, by any measure, the greatest accomplishment that modern medicine has ever made. But there are people out there denying that and refusing that. This is similar to when we said the world was round, right? The earth was round. There are a lot of deniers saying it was still flat because look, look out your street. You don't see it curved. But we knew science was better than that. But what's brought it to a head has been COVID-19 because COVID-19 really brought up the fact that we have to react quickly and use science to our best ability. And, um, you know, it's, it's important for us to understand that. We have to understand that science is how we should be making many of our decisions if we're going to remain healthy and keep this world moving in the right direction. And we need to elect leaders who understand that these are the facts and work with that. With that, we're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, uh, Dr. David Bannock. And Dr. Bannock, who is an infectious disease specialist, he's going to be giving us some helpful hints, especially for healthcare workers, on how to stay safe. And I really want to find out from him some of the specifics on what we have done right here in Connecticut to get to where we are now. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And it's my great pleasure to welcome my guest today, Dr. David Bannock. Dr. Bannock is a medical doctor and MD. He also has a master's degree in public health. He's an associate professor of medicine at the University of Connecticut. He is head of infection prevention and the hospital epidemiologist for UConn Health. David, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me on. David, let's let's start off with something we talked about a little bit earlier in the show. And basically, what has UConn done right and what have we done correctly as a state in terms of dealing with this pandemic? I'm assuming this is your first pandemic because you're a relatively young guy, right? Well, um, I suppose if you consider the 2009 H1N1 flu, uh, which was technically a pandemic, although the COVID-19 situation um, you know, far uh, supersedes that. Um, so I guess it's my first major pandemic that I've uh, been involved with. Okay. So with that, what have we learned? So I think we've learned quite a bit. Um, you know, if I reflect on uh, what we've learned at UConn Health, um, it's really um, – you know, how we can uh, kind of work together to address uh, an emerging infectious disease. You know, going into this, we had a lot of planning that had been done um, that had been somewhat hypothetical, um, you know, based on our experience with uh, H1N1 influenza. Um, and then more recently with Ebola virus, we had some plans that were in place, um, things like how would we communicate throughout the institution, how would we enact uh, safety measures throughout the hospital in order to provide um, safe care that's safe for both of our both our staff and our employees as well as our patients. Um, so we had some loose plans in place, but uh, the COVID-19 experience has really highlighted um, how we can come together as an institution, 
really develop uh, new pathways, new systems of care to take care of our patients um, in a safe um, and effective way. And I, I think that that's, um, there's a lot of lessons that have come along the way. Um, you know, I think uh, when we look, think about the future, some of the experiences that we've had over the past three months are really going to shape the way that we deliver healthcare at UConn in a safe way. Um, and the state also, I think, has learned quite a bit. Um, you know, there's been a lot of things that Connecticut has done quite well um, that at this point um, puts us in a better position than some other areas of the country. And, um, you know, I think we have to build on those measures and uh, ensure that we're keeping the entire state safe. David, let's get to some specifics. So better ways of delivering health care. Are we talking telemedicine um, as a way of delivering health care a little bit better? Absolutely. Um, you know, telemedicine and uh, video visits um, are something that had been in the development uh, even prior to COVID-19, but um, that's been something that's been rapidly accelerated um, throughout the pandemic. We know that um, you know, for safety purposes, um, patients um, can receive a lot of their care um, remotely, and we now have systems in place to be able to provide that care at a very high level. Um, that includes video visits. You know, the video technology uh, had been in development, but you know, as I mentioned, it's just rapidly accelerated tremendously. And now um, many of our outpatient clinics are able to provide video care, uh, video visits for our patients um, in a pretty high-quality manner. Um, and I think that technology just keeps getting better and better. Unfortunately, that's not sitting well with insurance companies. Uh, my understanding is Connecticut will stop paying for all telemedicine visits by the end of this week. Um, and I understand United Healthcare is set to do so July 30th. So um, I, I don't know what that's going to do to us. I mean, are we going to still just do it for free, or how is that going to work? Well, I, I think it's a concern. Uh, you know, we there's a lot of efforts going on to try to uh, – encourage uh, the companies and the state to support telemedicine. You know, I think video visits um, may be viewed a little bit differently by insurance uh, companies and may be more likely to be reimbursed. Uh, the extent that a video visit can be conducted um, is a little bit more than a, a telephone visit. Um, but I, I think as a healthcare community, we've, we've embraced this. Our patients have been um, have embraced it. And I think uh, you know, we still need to explore ways to ensure that it gets uh, reimbursed at adequate level that it could be sustained. So as we've moved through this pandemic and now we're starting to reopen services, because we're always talking about reopening, uh, we're now back to elective surgeries uh, to some extent, uh, more procedures, more people who have to come to the facility are coming to the facility. Um, how is that moving along? So I think um, we're very pleased with how it's been moving along at UConn Health. Um, you know, we have a multidisciplinary group that is leading this effort to reopen services. Um, and we, we've taken the approach that there's sort of the four S's that guide us. You know, safety, and that includes safety for our patients and our staff. Do we have supplies? Do we have the space? And do we have the staffing to be able to perform each of the different activities that we need to in order to serve our patients? Um, so, so every time that we think about a different part of the institution that we want to reopen, we always do that four-prong assessment. Um, and make sure that you know we are adequately where we need to be in order to be able to provide that level of care. Um, and, you know, I can go into some more details about the safety measures um, that we have in place. Um, Please. That's really that's that's really the overarching um, piece that we're most focused on. Um, that's providing safe care that's safe for both our patients and for our uh, our staff. And so a, yeah, a keep, few things. Yeah. A few things that we're thinking about. Um, you know, we really want to think about the environment of care. So um, we have to. Um, 
provide care in a location that is suitable. Um, so, for instance, if we um, provide care that involves uh, aerosol generation, um, we need to think about how that air is going to be recirculated. And we have areas of the institution that are specifically designated for that. Um, personal protective equipment, um, you know, has been a huge focus of um, the COVID-19 response, um, and ensuring that we have enough personal protective equipment um, and uh, that everyone is familiar and comfortable uh, with using the personal protective equipment that they need to perform different procedures um, is, has been really critical. You know, when we think about the environment, um, you know, things like how do we encourage social distancing in our waiting room, um, in our, uh, our staffing rooms, um, and then even in the patient care uh, areas um, where uh, clinicians are taking care of their patients, you know, what do we have in place to adequately um, provide that social distancing that we need? I mean, you know, masking is another big piece of it. Um, you know, it, when you come into UConn Health, um, things will look a lot different. You'll find that um, you'll be requested to wear a face covering or mask during uh, your, the entirety that you're in the uh, facility, and that and all of those people you'll come in contact with, um, the staff, uh, clinicians, you know, everyone will be wearing a mask, and in many cases, um, we, we use a face shield to provide eye protection when it's going to be close contact. And then also the cleaning measures that are taking in place. You know, we've really... Um, uh, enhanced our cleaning that we do um, uh, for all of our patients' um, rooms, and uh, you know we've been, that's been much more formalized and much more uh, stringent than it even had been before. So I think um, you know things are going to look a lot different for our patients, and it's really all geared towards uh, providing that safe care that we need to do. David, do we have enough PPE right now? Are we go and are we going to have enough if uh, this comes back again in the fall? So we do. Um, so, you know, throughout the uh, whole. COVID-19 experience going back to March, you know, PPE has really been a, a focus. Um, you know, we've, we've had enough PPE, although we do have to be uh, careful with our use of PPE. Um, we're sort of in a, what we call conservation mode. Um, so we've, every, everyone has had the PPE that they need to do whatever tasks they need to do, um, but uh, we just have to be careful with how we're distributing it um, and ensuring that we're doing so in um, an efficient way. So, so right now we do have PPE. We also have a lot of planning going on. Um, in anticipation of a rise in the number of cases that we may see uh, in the, as you go into the fall and into the winter. Um, so, so in addition to be able to provide PPE at this moment, we also have to be thinking to the future um, in terms of uh, stockpiling, ensuring that we have a supply chain in place that's going to provide us with what we need moving forward. So suffice it to say, David, are we saying that if patients have elective procedures, they're due for a colonoscopy or due for a procedure to be done, an outpatient procedure at UConn Health, um, are you saying it's it's safe? Definitely. I mean, I think um, at this point, you know, we uh, feel confident that we can provide safe care uh, with all these measures that we have in place. Uh, for some procedures and um, you know, I, I didn't mention this earlier, we are actually testing patients before their procedure. Um, and we do that for our surgical procedures and also for those procedures that may not necessarily be surgery but may involve a lot of aerosol generation um, because if we find that an individual is positive, we'll either try to postpone that procedure or if it needs to be performed, we'll have to do so in a special environment. And that's really geared towards keeping um, the patient safe as well as um, the staff that are going to be involved in those procedure activities. Yeah, we're actually testing in neurology. We're testing for EMG and EEG wherever a provider needs to be in close contact with the patient for more than 15 minutes has been our rule. So uh, we have been screening patients, and uh, I mentioned that of the 20 patients we've screened in the last week or so, we've had two positives come up, uh, people who are totally asymptomatic. So um, I think it's working. 
for not only the patient but also for the providers who have to be in contact with them. So uh, okay. I commend you, and that's a, that's a great program. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with my guest, Dr. David Bannock. Uh, we're talking about infectious disease, infection prevention, uh, especially with COVID-19. And I, and I want to tap his brain a little bit about treatments and the development of a vaccine. You're listening to Healthy Rounds of WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi, and we're with my guest today, Dr. David Bannock, who is the head of infection prevention and an associate professor of medicine at the University of Connecticut. David, uh, before the break, we talked a little bit about what did Connecticut do right? Why are we kind of in a good situation now in terms of COVID and the number of new cases overall? So I think um, there's a few things that Connecticut has done quite well, um, and that's really been effective in uh, keeping our numbers of cases uh, relatively low so far in Connecticut. Well, I think um, you know the three things that come to mind, I think our response in terms of the reopening has been um, very uh, calculated and very thoughtful um, and very staged, uh, and I think that's been really beneficial. So. Um, the governor has uh, taken a, a leadership role in this um, and has collaborated with our neighboring states um, and being able to open up certain areas of the state in, um, in, in just a very cautious um, way and um, in a very controlled way. I think emphasizing the social distancing has been really critical um, and that's uh, being supportive to different sectors of the economy in Connecticut and um, different businesses and uh, ensuring that social distancing measures can be adhered to as we reopen. And I think the, uh, the testing availability has been really critical. Um, the state has really been um, at the forefront in terms of ensuring that we're testing widely um, and also testing wisely. So our, we're, we're offering testing widely available to individuals throughout the community um, who are symptomatic, but as well as looking at sampling certain groups that are asymptomatic, particularly in high-risk uh, in high-risk groups, and uh, I think the, the emphasis on the, the nursing homes has been really critical. You know, I think throughout the country we've seen that nursing homes um, are really a hotbed of transmission, and uh, taking an active effort in testing the nursing home patients and the nursing home staff. And now that's actually been mandated. Um, I think that's been a really effective intervention in reducing um, the impact of COVID-19 uh, within our communities. And then, you know, the emphasis on masking, I think, is really critical. You know, I think there's more and more data coming coming out that shows the effectiveness of masking individuals in order to prevent spreading from the asymptomatic individual to others in the community. I think that's been um, a really key piece in uh, keeping transmission rates low here in Connecticut and the emphasis on masking. So I, th I think there have been multiple factors. Um, you know, the state's taken, uh, the state's leadership has taken a key role. The Department of Public Health has been really critical in working with um, healthcare institutions and communities. So I think I think it's been a very collaborative effort, and I think that's really paid off um, to get us to the point where we are today. Uh, David, when it comes to testing, uh, I know we do at UConn Health, we do the nasopharyngeal test. But other people are telling me sometimes they go up to the testing, not at our place, where they just give you the swab and, and you put it in your nose yourself, or others are saying they just do an oral test. Uh, what's the best way? I mean, what, what should we be shooting for here in terms of uh, what is the most sensitive test to find COVID-19? So I think um, 
you know, that's an evolving question. You know, we use nasopharyngeal swab testing um, for uh, a couple of reasons. First, because we know that it's sensitive, and also it's been validated with our specific testing platform. So each hospital has their own um, test uh, machine, their platform that they use um, for their testing, and that not just hospitals, but also laboratories um, that are in um, healthcare, other health types of healthcare facilities. Um, you know, every machine is different. Um, you know, we um, have a very collaborative relationship with the JAX Lab, and their testing uh, platform has been validated for nasopharyngeal swab. Um, they're in the midst of validating using other types of specimens like uh, saliva and um, uh, self-collected nasal swabs. Um, they just haven't been validated at this point yet. Um, then the, the literature has shown that in terms of the sensitivity, our ability to uh, detect virus at the lowest level in nasopharyngeal swab may performed uh, slightly better than some of these other specimens um, that we're using. Um, but it does need to become somewhat of a trade-off. You know, certainly there's the added convenience of using uh, saliva or um, an, a self-collected nasal swab, um, and there's a trade-off versus the um, losing some sensitivity um, at this in order to get that convenience. Um, and you know, I think I think there's a lot of different ways that we're going to uh, use this type of uh, testing in the future. And um, you know, the, the specimen source uh, may be dependent on how sensitive your test needs to be. Um, and uh, the type of the reason that you're being tested. So I, I think there's a lot that we have to learn about the test itself, um, and uh, you know I think that'll continue to evolve moving forward. David, in the last couple of minutes, uh, when is when will we see a vaccine in your estimate? We've heard different ones on this program. We've had uh, we've heard from Dr. Fauci. We had Dr. Peter Hotez as a guest, who said you know not till the end of 2021. Um, there's a camp saying that by the beginning of 2021, we're going to have an effective vaccine that's ready for everybody. Um, give me the David Bannock view. Sure. So um, I think at this point, um, there's several vaccines that are out there uh, currently, currently in various phases of clinical trials. A couple have made it into uh, phase two clinical trials, uh, which uh, has demonstrated safety. You know, I think the challenges with the vaccine development are that uh, First, we have to find that it's safe. Next, we have to see that these candidate vaccines are able to elicit immune response. Um, and then the durability of the immune response is also key. And unfortunately, that piece of it, you know, does take some time. We need to know, you know, over months, you know, does that, do those antibodies that the vaccine generates actually last or do they um, fade away? Um, and then, you know, once we have a few candidates that are really um, looking particularly promising, um, that are actually going to go into the FDA approval process and manufacture. You know, that does take some additional time. And then, you know, the key thing about a vaccine is it's only you know, as effective as we can get it out to the people who need it. And in the case of COVID-19, it's going to be a large population that's going to need it in order to really get that herd um, immunity that we need in the community. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm optimistic. I think we will get a vaccine. You know, I think there will be some vaccines becoming available next year. Um, but in terms of getting the, uh, the true benefit of the vaccine, I think we may be looking later into 2021 um, to, uh, to actually see the tangible benefits of the vaccine. But, uh, you know, I'm still staying optimistic that um, this, there may be, this may be able, be able to be accelerated to some degree, uh, but uh, optimism, but also having some uh, sort of realistic approach as well with, with what we can expect. And that really emphasizes the importance of the other um, types of preventive measures that we're really focusing on, you know, as we uh, move forward. David, thank you. Thank you for your time today. And, and really, personally, thank you for everything you do to keep us safe over at UConn Health. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Thanks. That was my guest, Dr. David Bannock.
uh, and he is the head of infection prevention at the University of Connecticut and UConn Health. Many thanks to our studio producer. Mike Olko has been on the board today. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing, as always, for Healthy Rounds. Uh, next week, I'm going to be taking the weekend off, and you will have a best of. And Mike uh, and Joey are going to be putting together some of um, our best interviews that were done over the course of the past uh, several months and uh, using that as a program. With that, I wish you all a wonderful holiday next week for the 4th of July. And most importantly, please stay safe. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi, sponsored by St. Francis Hospital, Ratchford Eye Center, Hartford Healthcare, MD Advantage, and UConn Health Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com.